Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium, Merck, in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is Jose Alcane, Director of Research Services and Affiliate Faculty in the Foundations of Education Department at the VCU School of Education. Today's conversation is a part of a special series in connection with the theme of our upcoming Merck conference, The Promise of Public Education, Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice in a New Era. Public schools have been designed to meet a range of ambitious goals critical to the health and stability of our country. They promise opportunities for social mobility, to develop skills that lead to fulfilling vocation and economic livelihood, and to instill dispositions and critical thinking skills essential for democratic citizenship. Although elements of these foundational principles may endure, recent events have shed light on how this promise has, in many cases, been unfulfilled, particularly for specific student populations. Over the past year and a half and counting, we have seen the COVID-19 pandemic disrupt nearly every aspect of public schools, forcing educators and students to rapidly adapt to a new and uncertain environment. At the same time, international social movements promoting racial justice have called upon school systems to re-examine policies and practices in pursuit of greater equity for their students and their community. Whatever the future may bring, public education finds itself at an inflection point where we can reimagine its purposes and possibilities. For each episode in this series, we will explore a fundamental element of public education, discuss how it has been impacted by the events of the past year and a half and counting, and we'll share our vision for what it could be moving forward. In this episode, we're discussing college in the new era and have invited three local experts who can best speak to where we are and where we might go from here. I'm so happy and grateful to have with us today Paige Elizabeth. Paige is a, will be a sophomore at Radford University. We also have Sophia Alkane. Sophia will be a sophomore at Christopher Newport University. Um, I also want to thank Paige and Sophia for being with us again. They were part of a great abstract podcast episode, two-part series in 2020, dealing with the graduating high school class of 2020 and their resilience. So we really thank you, Paige and Sophia, for being with us again. And also, Sophia, for those of you that may know, is also my daughter. So we welcome Paige and Sophia again. Thank you so much. I also want to welcome and thank Sarah Lee for being with us. Um, Sarah is a second year, we'll be starting second year at the pharmacy school here at Virginia Commonwealth University. So she started her first year in pharmacy school as we transitioned to the pandemic. So we really thank you, Sarah, for bringing your perspective as a graduate student to this conversation. We are going to turn now to the questions for our panelists. Uh, and as we do, I want to thank my colleague, Jenna Lenhard, recruitment specialist in the School of Education, for co-developing with me some of the questions for you all today. Okay, well, thanks again. And we're going to start. This is an open question for anyone. What it has been like to be a first-year or graduate college student this past year? What have you learned from this experience? I mean, I personally, this year has been crazy, obviously, for everyone just going through this whole pandemic. But for me, I went from going, like having basically no end of a senior year being thrown into freshman year of college, just in the middle of a pandemic, 
So it definitely was scary starting college with like the looming presence of illness, you know, being spread to the school. But I, despite that, I think that CNU did a really good job of containing and making sure everyone was wearing masks and making sure everyone was like social distanced in classes and like things like that. So I think that I still feel like I had a good semblance of a, of a freshman year this year, even though we couldn't have some events or we couldn't have all in-person classes or we couldn't see each other's faces, things like that. But we still were able to be in person and we were still able to have some events and we were still able to be on campus. So I think that I had like, I was able to experience just like a little bit of a freshman year. Um, and this year I'll be interested to go back and see if anything's changed or if we're just still in the pandemic. So it's going to be the same. And you'll have something to compare as you start right. sophomore year to right. your freshman year. I kind of wanted to go off of what Sophia said in that it was super scary going into all this, not even because yes. I didn't even get an orientation or anything like that. Like I kind of knew the campus a little bit, but not as much as I wished I would have. But Radford did a super good job at trying to make it as normal as possible with all the guidelines that we had to follow. Um, they tried to do a lot of outdoor events that were socially distanced for even the freshmen, um, just to get them like used to campus and everything in the very first week. So I'm really glad that they did that. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like both Christopher Newport and Radford tried to mitigate, uh, you know, some of the more negative aspects of the pandemic to, to help you all maybe have this, you know, college experience, have the best that it could be uh, given the circumstance. How about um, you, Sarah? What was your experience as you transitioned to graduate school? Well, again, I think VCU did a tremendous job of um, pivoting. I know that last May was when we all had to kind of transition quickly. And so I think they kept in place some of the things that worked well from last I mean, the previous year when the pandemic started and, you know, they did, we had orientation, at least for my class in person. And so that was uh, an opportunity for us to meet and greet, but everything throughout the year was in, you know, online. And so those icebreakers that we sometimes do in person, those are a little bit harder to do um, as well as small group activities. But I think that, um, you know, we had to be flexible in how we collaborated online. And yeah, and, and I don't think it was all bad. I think some of the changes that were made, um, made us more, I think made my schedule more efficient. So I think it was, I think we're able to learn from it. Excellent. So you found a lot of positives even as you transition to the digital space. So that's great. Back to Sophia again for a follow-up for um, some of the comments you made. So as you transition to your freshman year, how or did your experience exceed or meet your expectations of your first year in college? Yeah, so honestly, I didn't really know what to expect in, a, in college life. So I didn't really have high expectations of what was or was not going to happen, especially in a pandemic. But like I said before, I honestly think CNU did a really good job of handling the pandemic. So I was able to have a more like, quote unquote, normal experience than some of my friends at like other schools. Sarah, were you expecting, uh, um, you know, given that you were transitioning to graduate school, were you, did you have certain expectations or were you kind of in the frame of being more flexible and kind of taking what came to you in stride? What yeah. were your expectations? 
Yeah, you know, I think I was at a slight advantage because I was coming from a teacher's perspective. And so it, I had been teaching for about 10, 12 years. And so it had been a, been a while since I've been in school. So I had a little bit of trepidation about that. However, I was on the other side of the aisle. And so when the pandemic hit the school district that I worked for, we went virtual. And so we had to quickly pivot from uh, in-person learning to online format. And so I knew how, um, what the transition was like on the other side from the teacher's lens. And so um, I kind of knew what to expect from the student's perspective as well. So it wasn't uh, much of a surprise for me, but I think I had a uh, deeper appreciation for all of the extra work that teachers had to do, you know, behind the scenes. So to Absolutely. Speak. <laughs> you, Myself, I had to learn Blackboard Collaborate. I had to learn how to, you know, make Google Classroom and assign homework and how to, you know, check for attendance and all of that. And so, and it was a huge learning curve. And so, yeah, I think it was both advantageous and also very, I guess, made me more empathetic to the um, professor's point of view. Uh, excellent. And in staying, in staying with those comments about the digital space and how you, you had to be flexible and adapt, how did you build relationships on the online setting with your classmates or, col or other college students in your class? How, how did you go about trying to do community building, let's say, in, in that transitioning to that digital space? Now, I'll be honest, I think that was kind of a challenge. Um, so when we are in person, you know, as teachers at the beginning of the year, we, you know, get ready for the school year and we do uh, these icebreakers during our small meetings to, you know, welcome new team members and catch up and get ready for the school year. And I know there's one icebreaker where we're allowed to talk and we have um, Dixie cups and rubber bands and some pencils, and then we need to try to like stack them up, um, but we can't use our hands or something like that. We can only use our, our elbows right. or something like that. Right. And it forces us to communicate with each other, and um, it's a great icebreaker for building new teams. And obviously, we can do any of that during the pandemic. And so, I think that for me as a second year uh, when as a first year pharmacy student we were um we had to go to lab everything was online but we had to certain things we couldn't do at home such as lab exercises and so we were assigned to our lab groups of four and i noticed that i stayed very close to them because i did meet with them once or twice throughout the semester and so i think the power of meeting in person is still you know, is very powerful and um, right, right. And keeping in touch with them through group me. And yeah, I think that was kind of my way of connecting with an entire class of 100. It's kind of a smaller group, right? That shared experience of doing lab together during the pandemic. So that's really interesting. So even in that, in your context and situation that you were dealing with, the in-person contact with your smaller group was really formative and important, it seems like. So that's great. So you, you've kind of made those bonds going into your second year of pharmacy. So that's, that's something very valuable, I think, and positive. Sophia and Paige, how about, how about you all? I know you, it, it was perhaps a little bit, given your earlier comments, a little bit easier 
for y'all to build some relationships since you were actually, um, you know, attending class in person. I personally think that it definitely was very, a lot more challenging this year to make connections. Like you, you have to go out of your way to like actually meet people now because yes. when you're, when you're in a class with everyone's wearing masks and everyone's six feet apart, it's very hard to like lean over to your desk partner and be like, Oh my God. Hey, like nice to meet you. Like you can't do that anymore. Like you don't know yes. all the people in your class. It makes it a lot harder to like, I don't know, form study groups or form groups of people in, in these classes that you now have. So that definitely was very challenging because we didn't have that same like in-person contact, even though we were in person. I mean, we, we didn't have that same connections because it just like wasn't possible with masks and a six foot distance. But I will say I had, I had like a class this year that I took and it was online, but in the online class, we did Zoom breakout groups. And that was like a godsend, honestly, because it, you could still do group work with people, but in a virtual form. So like you still got to know people better, possibly better than uh, you would have in person in a pandemic. You know what I mean? Right. So it was still, there's definitely pros and cons to both the in-person and the virtual format in the pandemic that we're in now. Absolutely. Paige, did you have a similar uh, sort of experience in building relationships as um, Sophia and Sarah were describing? Yeah, I would say that I'm a little bit on the fence about saying that it was difficult or saying that it was easy because I'm, I'm a dance major. So all of those classes were in person and I kind of went into school having a built-in like friend group because I saw those people every day in person, like four or five times a week. Wow. So I think that that really helped me form those friendships. But like Sophia said in her other classes, whether they were online or in person, you're spaced out with masks really far apart. And it's kind of hard to communicate with somebody. Like even if you need help on a question on like a practice sheet, you would most likely have to get up, walk over to somebody and disturb the whole class while you're doing that. Right. So I will say that in like normal classes, it was definitely harder to make friends or like get study groups together. So um, just a lot of different challenges and having to be flexible and given your circumstance was key um, this past year. And I think it continues to be so, as Sarah mentioned earlier, how, to, how, to, how do we stay flexible? So Paige, staying with you and, and some of the earlier comments, given that maybe, you know, some aspects in online are positive or uh, were beneficial. What from the online learning experience do you feel colleges should keep moving forward? Or what aspects of that online learning should we change in the future? Uh, if anything, if we're allowed to go back to in-person. So in other words, given some of the perhaps pros of the digital online space, what should we perhaps keep doing even if we go to in-person? I definitely think that Zoom should, from like now moving forward, be an option because if like a student is sick or injured or they're honestly just having like a really bad day and they can't bring themselves to go to class, I think having that option to attend class in the comfort of your own room or the comfort of a study area is really nice. Um, and it gives more flexibility with like the teacher some ways too. And I also Great. think that 
we should keep the option of turning things in online because especially this year, almost all of my like papers, projects, even like homework assignments or just classwork were all turned in online. And I know like in high school when I was doing an assignment it had to be handed in in paper or in right. person. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I think has been a benefit as well. Anything else you want to add to that, um, Sarah or Sophia, about some of the positives that perhaps we should keep doing as even as, as we go back to in person? You know, I think I agree um, with Paige. I think people have le different learning styles. And I personally felt like I can be more, I was more comfortable at home. And some people are more introverted. Sometimes I can be introverted as a profession, I felt like I have to be extroverted, but I think personally, I'm an introverted person. And so to be able to stay at home and be able to learn in the comfort of my home, I think was, was a blessing. And also, again, we have lots of different learning styles. And so for the school pharmacy to record all of the live sessions so that students, the second language learners, or even students that just had a difficult time grasping that concept, they could rewatch it. And then if that was their learning style. And, and so I think that was a um, positive that I hope we carry over to the next year. That's great yeah. insight. Sophia, go ahead. I also think that the virtual just kind of platforms will kind of stick around now because we know that we can use that in place of, of in-person classes. And I think that like a virtual choice should be options for kids to like are at home sick or like don't want to come to school or whatever. I don't know, whatever the case may be. I think virtual classes definitely is an option, but like shouldn't be the only option still is a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you all for, for, for that. Um, Sarah, staying with you with something that given your great insight and perspective of both being an educator and now transitioning to a student yourself. I think we can all say that this, this year plus has been very unique in terms of instruction where, you know, the class space, uh, the instructional space and our personal space have, have kind of merged or, you know, for example, we, you know, if we have an online class, we might know what our den looks like or our you know what my office looks like you know I know what your perhaps your library in your home looks like or these personal spaces or maybe even you know your bedroom if you're doing the class from your from your bedroom so that that line has been blurred between the personal and professional boundaries so given that and your perspective what what have been your experiences that as it relates to engaging uh, and building relationships with faculty in the digital space, so instructor to, to students. And then if you transition to in-person, how does that change or will it change? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point. You know, talking about blurring the spaces, I mean, here's my dog right here, you know. Right, <laughs> exactly. Oh, cute. Yes. <laughs> Very cute. And sometimes he would make appearances during class at um, blurring of classroom and personal life. I think you're right. Yes. We kind of had to draw new boundaries. And so in a way, it felt like we were more personal, even though we were on Zoom, because we we're sort of inviting everyone into our homes. But at the same time, I, I know that like, I miss those sort of impromptu after class, you know, like students would come up to me and ask me clarifications 
or I would also see students, you know, after class um, discussing with each other, uh, some uh, clarify something uh, amongst each other. And so I think those sort of learning opportunities are, were absent because, and so I think that in-person allows sort of those organic yes. conversations to take place. But online, um, I think it was, you have to be more proactive in connecting with your faculty. For example, I reached out and I emailed one of my professors that, uh, so we're all assigned to a small group with a mentor faculty. And I knew that I wouldn't have an opportunity to see him in the hallways or just kind of introduce myself in the hallways. So I, you know, I emailed him before the start of the semester. And so I think in an online format, you just have to be a little bit more proactive and connecting with your faculty. But I found all of them to be incredibly uh, responsive and wanting to connect and, you know, they're learning. It's a huge learning curve for them as well. And so I think all office hours and being available beyond just a physical office was a uh, probably a learning curve for them as well on how to be available outside of that physical office. Absolutely. Yes, that, that was that was a certain challenge. Um, you know, I taught two classes in the spring and that everything you said just kind of rings true in terms of allowing the, the online office meetings or being flexible because you were missing that hallway kind of after class impromptu, like you were saying, which is really key. So that, that rings true. Um, thank you for that, Sarah. How about Sophia and Paige? Given your, your experiences this past year, how, how did you try to form those relationships with the faculty or instructors? I think um, that definitely was something that is harder to form in a virtual format because when you're in person, you actually can see your professor's face and your professor will then know your name and your face. You know, I think it, it, it definitely is different in a virtual format. You have to go out of your way to, like Sarah said, introduce yourself to your professor, email them separately, you know, and yes. be like, hello, this is me. I'm in your class. But I definitely do think it was challenging. I had a class like last semester that was like like it was like a gen ed sort of it was like a lecture style it was like the base class I took so it was online but it wasn't through zoom because we had like too many kids so it was through blackboard collaborate or whatever but I like the t like we didn't have our cameras on so the teacher never got to see what I looked like like the teacher if I saw my professor in the hallway now he'd have no idea that I was in his class last year yeah, you know like that's, that's like that's definitely sort of like a a new challenge that has has been presented in this pandemic so something I could have done was go to office hours or you know set up a meeting one-on-one -on -one, but that's something that I didn't take advantage of and now I know to do that in the future right that's that's great insight um Sophia certainly and it kind of fits what Sarah was saying about having to go out of your way to perhaps make that connection because you know it, it, it becomes harder in the digital space Paige did you have a similar sort of experience in that, trying to form a relationship with the instructors? Yeah, I definitely think that it was something that was really hard this past year, but I did, I did find that even if your cameras were off in class or your teacher couldn't see you because it wasn't in person or anything like that, even if you would just answer a simple question, they would be super excited about it. And sometimes that can lead you into other like tangents. Like for example, one time I answered a question in class and for about a good 20 minutes 
after that, me, my teacher, and a few other students just continued to talk about this subject, and that formed that relationship with the teacher. So I do think that that part of just like interacting in class does help form a little relationship. Yeah, that's great. Did did you all use the chat? If you were in Zoom, let's say, did you all use the chat function a lot? The side conversation chat. I personally didn't use it that much because I was in some classes that I had to say things like it would answer that I had to say it. But I have heard that the chat function is a lot of fun because I didn't know this until the end of last year. You can like chat to a singular person and nobody else can see. I never knew right. that. That's kind of fun. <laughs> right. So that kind of mimics, you know, if you were in class, the little side note that you would write to your <laughs> to the person sitting next to you. Now yeah. you can you can do it in chat. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Paige. That, that is important, the engagement of you answering questions in class, and that, that created that additional conversation based on your comments or questions. So that, that's really great insight in terms of um, trying to build those, those relationships in class. I, I was mentioning the chat because I know it's, it, it's used a lot, or at least in the past year, in some of my classes, that was a way for it was almost a way of um, going to Sarah's comment about, you know, maybe if you were an introvert in class who maybe didn't want to answer a question or get engaged because of whatever reason, um, in some classes, I found that the chat function, you know, some students didn't have to necessarily say anything, you know, off mute, but they could contribute in the chat. And so that was a great vehicle for access to some students I know. Sarah, you, you had a similar comment? Yeah, I was going to piggyback off that um, notion of access because um, I think it all depends on the professor as well. Some professors didn't like to be interrupted during class if a student had a question. They prefer if you put it in the chat. And also, you know, we are trying to be as equitable as possible for the students that are in person versus the students that are on Zoom. And so, Sometimes students would ask questions in person in the classroom and the online students couldn't hear. And so then oh. you know, that could create sort of this inequitable learning divide. And so yes. some professors said all questions need to go through the chat. That way everyone can see the question and hear the answer. Um, because if because if someone asked a question in person, only those students in attendance would get that instructional material because they didn't get the to hear the original question. And I thought Paige's comment about um, interacting with the professor after you know answering a question, I totally know what that feels like because like from a teacher's perspective, when you're teaching online and you see all these like blank, like no pictures, like you know, people are not turning on their cameras, it, it just kind of feels like you're like talking to nobody. <laughs> and so, <laughs> A student actually like responds like, oh, someone's out there. And <laughs> it's like it's a great feeling. And so um, I think just even turning your cameras on for your professors and, you know, having them see, oh, are they following along? Are they confused? Are they, you know, um, right. I think is really helpful. I mean, but totally your prerogative. But Paige, um, I think that you're, I'm sure your professors are very happy to hear from you. I also just really quick think that an in-person format, it's easier for professors to see a whole classroom and be like, oh, nobody's understanding what I'm saying or teaching right now. But yes. if it's virtual and like nobody's saying anything, they're probably just like, oh, everyone's fine. Everyone gets it. So I think 
the participation and the communication, especially virtually with your teachers, is very important to communicate what you are and are not understanding, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly from the instructor perspective, uh, as you said, Sophia, it's really hard to take, you know, a quick snapshot, like if you were in person in the class, you can see faces and reactions and maybe who doesn't understand or needs more help or you can walk over and maybe ask more questions. Yeah, it's really much harder in the digital space. Absolutely. Especially with cameras off for sure. That was funny, Sarah, Sarah, your comment, like, oh yeah, there is somebody there, you know, when, when comments are made or. You've taught to zoom with like all cameras off, right? Yes. (laughs) Most of the cameras off. Yeah. But these are, these are certainly, you know, things that we have learned the past year of how to deal with those kind of digital interactions for sure. And um, sort of like a related topic or question about higher education in general, you know, this was happening even before the pandemic, but higher education being challenged uh, in terms of what the value of higher education is, you know, certainly before COVID, people were saying, asking, what is the value of higher education? Definitely COVID has just put a spotlight on not only higher education, but many things in our lives. But, and this is open to anyone who wants to um, kind of contribute. What, what do you see as the value of higher education? And some of this we really touched on already as it relates to exposure to a diversity of thought or maybe diverse um, student populations and creating equity in society. Sarah, I think you, you mentioned something about equity uh, and access. So what do you all see as the value of higher education? Any thoughts on that? I think that's a really relevant question. Um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and I moved to the States when I was eight years old. And so I've always been interested in following along like with international student assessments. And so I don't know if you're familiar with PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. And administered by the OECD, Organization of Economic of Cooperative Development. And it's um, they administer this test to 15-year-olds every three years to 79 of the most developed countries. And you would, the U.S. spends more per student than any other country in the world. And yet we are, I wrote down the numbers here, in terms of reading, we're 18th, I'm sorry, 13th out of 79 science we're 18th out of 79 and mathematics we're 37th out of 79 exactly (laughs) and if you look at a lot of the um jobs the fastest growing jobs according to the bureau of labor statistics they're all in stem they're all in math and science and so unfortunately we are not preparing our students to be able to enter on these very lucrative and um fields And so um, that's what I was really passionate about um, as a um, elementary teacher with a science background, because it's cumulative. And so these results didn't happen overnight. You know, they are losing out on critical math and science instruction every year. And by the time that they're 15, you know, the results show that we're way behind other countries. And so we need to invest more in our math and science education and um, so that they can enter these fields. And it doesn't mean 
a university, um, entering a university. I think trade schools are just as you know, stable and have offer, you know, road to middle class. But again, they need those um, critical math and science skills. And so we really need a wake up call because it's kind of like Sputnik all over again. And they're going to say, you know, uh, you know, Russia beat us to space. It must be the education system. And now something else is going to happen. And they're going to say, you know, what's going on with our education, but we need to be more proactive and invest in math and science. And I think that will create more equity and make sure that more people can be uh, join the middle class and not make it gender biased because math and science shouldn't be for boys and language arts for girls. You know, I think we should not be gender biased and make sure that it's um, accessible to everyone. And we can do that through our school system, but we just need to make sure that, you know, we incentivize teachers to get a, you know, science background, invest in their own science education so that they can provide a more higher quality science education starting from the elementary level. Absolutely. That, that is such great insight into some of the issues that we're having. And, I, and so um, sort of in terms of some of your comments, if, if, if I understood, some of the value is preparing students for the workforce for jobs that are available out there, right? And so in that sense, a certain value we can place on higher education. And by the way, higher education also can encompass what you said, trade schools, right? So post high school education would be, you know, higher education to, to encompass trade schools. I think that's a great insight. So one value is, you know, we're preparing students, hopefully, for jobs that are out there. So that's great insight into that comment and question. Um, Sophia and Paige, do you all see as you, you're, you know, sort of on the beginning side of your higher education career, do you see that as a value for you? In other words, gaining skills and knowledge to prepare you hopefully for a future job that you might be thinking about or something that you might want to do in the future? Is that sort of the value um, proposition? I was just going to say, I think there's always been a very like, there's always been like an emphasis on getting a college degree or getting some sort of higher education and all throughout school. Like that's basically what you're working for. Like teachers are like, all right, got to get ready for college. This is what it's like in college. But I don't feel like they give us the opportunities to be like, oh, there's also trade school. Oh, there's also apprenticeships. You know, like there's other jobs besides like going to college and getting a degree and doing this. You know, they don't, I don't feel like they give us many options when it comes to higher education, but I feel like there are so many options in the real world when it comes to higher education. Um, That's great insight. I don't really know if that answered your question, but. <laughs> yes, it's, it's related to what we're talking about. Like what is, how can we, uh, and also tying your comment to, to Sarah's comment before, like how do we prepare students to maximize the value as they're going through either college or trade school, whatever that, that higher education looks like. And I think perhaps as Sarah mentioned earlier on, we need to do a better job in, in providing students with those choices that are out there, like you said. I kind of stay on the topic of like trade school or college. I attended Hanover County Public Schools and within the county, we do have a trade school for high schoolers. 
So I really appreciated that because I was actually a part of that with um, like oh, TV great. production as a trade. Oh, but wow. there was also the construction, yeah, cosmetology, electricians, um, and set like when you were a junior in high school, you could definitely do that. So I think that while there could still be more support of going straight into a trade from high school, I think that Hanover County did an amazing job at giving students the opportunity to explore that and really get to think and see if that's what they really want to do for their lives. But for like a value of higher education, I've always kind of thought that a value just in general is like doing what you like and if you can, being successful in it. Because whether you pick a trade, a university, or even if you just go straight into making your own business, something like that, if you really, really enjoy it, that's about it. Like it's valuable to you. And that's something that you're going to love for the rest of your life. Oh, wow. That, that's great insight as well. So if, if it's a value to you, then it's a valuable exercise, right? And I think that's, that's something I'm going to practice Paige. Thank you for, <laughs> that's certainly true. You know, if you're, if you're, really liking what you're doing, you're invested, whatever that activity is, whether, like you said, whether it's college, university, trade school, then that is valuable. And so given all those great comments and sort of starting to kind of wrap up our conversation, which has been great, by the way, thank you all so much for your insights and your comments. So as current college students, what do you all see as, as the future of higher education, given all our comments that we just made? And what is the new era of higher education post-pandemic? Well, I am so happy that Paige is majoring in dance. And Sophia, what are you majoring in? Bio. Well, look at you. And so kind of everywhere. I think that the humanities are just as important as STEM, but as someone that has a STEM background, I would hope that this pandemic has highlighted the need for more quality science instruction. You know, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that people do not have a solid science background to help discriminate between, you know, what is fact and what is myth. And, and I don't know if this is our Sputnik moment and for us to kind of reflect and be like, what is going on with the education system? Um, and so I know that other countries had a much more swifter response to COVID with contact tracing, making sure, uh, you know, with masks and, and I think our public health education system and educating the public I think if we did our if we do our job correctly at um, with a younger elementary middle school high, then I think that the public health message would it wouldn't be like rocket science, right? It would it we lay the foundational science scientific knowledge for the public to make that decision. And so I think I read somewhere that um, by the time a U.S. high school student graduates from high school there and compare that to a Japanese student that uh, graduates from high school, the US student is has two years less of math and science education than the Japanese high school student. And so again, it's cumulative starting from pre-K kindergarten, you know, they are missing out on math and science here there. And then by the time they graduate from high school, we're years behind you know, other high school students from other countries. 
And again, I think STEM and even STEAM, science, technology, engineering, <laughs> art, you know, art, art and mathematics. I think um, that's going to be the great equalizer and make sure that everyone can be on the even, um, even playing field, make it equitable for everyone to be part of the middle class. So in your vision of the future or the, or the new era, you envision like better prepared students in terms of science, science and math or maybe even STEAM as they go through their higher education um, career. Absolutely, so making it a priority. I think it's a matter of national security. You know, um, all of our, you know, bioterrorism, you know, or like the cyber terrorism that we can hear about, you know, these are, are all based on STEAM or STEM jobs. And so if we're falling behind at the elementary level, you know, by the time we get to the university level, you know, I think it's an area of concern. And I think that we should really be proactive and invest in um, our STEAM education now. Piggyback, piggybacking, piggybacking. <laughs> That's right, yes. Off of yes. Sarah, sorry. <laughs> I do think that we're going to see, hopefully see more STEM jobs and more people wanting to go into that field because I feel like from like from K through 12 kids start to not like the sciences and the maths for whatever reason like it just throughout like a middle school I would say is the time when kids are like oh my god I hate math like we need to get that out of kids system we need to be like math is actually can be fun and math there's different types of math you know it's you just a normal thing different yeah. things yeah, exactly. It's not something to hate. I think that will become more of a regular thing to see as people starting to appreciate the value of, of math and sciences. Also, I think that just in higher education in general, I think that hopefully we'll see a more diverse pool of people, not like not just gender wise, but also if anything, this pandemic has shown us the disparities that come with lower income uh, places and higher income places. And hopefully more money and more funding and education will be going to lower income communities that will then raise these these communities up and these kids that go there will then have the opportunity to get higher education at the same level as high income um, communities you know like I think that more more opportunities will come like that to kind of make just the gaps that we have just in, in America in general, I think that those are going to begin to close through higher education and, and eventually a, they'll come, come together and work well together. That, that's an excellent, excellent comments, an excellent vision of perhaps the new era and, you know, will be more opportunity, more access, mm -hmm. kind of leveling that playing field, as Sarah was saying, with increased funding and access. Yeah, if I... I'm going to be completely honest. When I started to think about this question, I struggled a lot with trying to like find an answer, I guess you could say. And that led me to the point of we really don't know what the future of higher education is going to be. It's completely it's unpredictable. Great point. great point. It can change so fast. And I agree with Sarah and Sophia that there's so many new things happening. Like even at my school, I've learned about so many new majors that I never even knew could be a thing just in like one semester I learned like four or five new majors so I truly think that 
the future is unpredictable, but I do think that a lot of changes are going to be happening very fast. That absolutely. I totally agree about the, you know, not being able to predict the future. Absolutely. And things now, especially what we've lived through, uh, we know that anything can change so quickly. I mean, last spring, right? We went, it felt like we went from zero to a hundred almost overnight when we started to get into the pandemic in true form in the United States. So I can totally agree with your comments about the unpredictable future and nature of the lives that we're living. But certainly, uh, you know, we're hopeful that given your comments, Sarah, Sophia, and Paige will have this um, kind of brighter future for everyone through higher education. So I want to thank you all for your comments. We're going to need to leave it there for now. But uh, if you want to continue this conversation, we hope you will join us for our 2021 Merck conference on Friday, October 22nd on the hopin.2 online platform. Tickets are available now, and there are special rates for VCU and Merck school divisions. You can register on our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu forward slash conference. That's M-E-R-C dot S-O-E dot V-C-U dot E-D-U forward slash conference. While, while you're there, you can check out Merck projects and reports on prominent issues in public education and sign up for our stakeholder email listserv to stay up to date with our latest research and resources. You can listen to other episodes from the series and subscribe to Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the Merck website. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Million thank yous to Paige, Sophia, and Sarah for sharing their perspective today. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation. We hope you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Uh, let's talk again soon, and thank you for listening.